Hey guys, welcome back ASM and families, parents, whoever might be watching this this week. We're in the Gospel of John still in our series called That You May Believe. And uh, I want to start by giving you a list of five names and a sixth. There's going to be five names that mean nothing to you and one that hopefully means something to you, but they all mean something to me. And that list is John, Evan, Ryan, Michael, Stephen, and Curtis. See, those names represent my five closest friends, my senior year of high school and freshman year of college. We all went to different schools, but we were in the same youth group. And when we graduated, we all kind of went in our separate directions. But my friend Ryan, who was probably my best friend at the time, had this really cool room downstairs in his parents' house. I know it's like every high schooler's dream where he basically had like a huge room that was sort of like a tiny apartment just to himself in the downstairs of his family's home. And he even had its own private uh, patio with a little fire pit and all that stuff. So we always went to Ryan's house to hang out whenever we got together. And on this particular night, I remember we were all there hanging out and having our different side conversations around the patio. And it became apparent very quickly that there was a problem in our circle. And that problem was that as we started talking to each other, we realized that everyone in the group had been talking to somebody else in the group about somebody else in the group. And as that started to come out, we started to realize that this was actually hurting our friend circle. Now, we had to change something. Something had to happen. We had to pursue the, the word that we're going to talk about today, which is unity. We had to pursue it in order to keep these relationships. But also, as we'll discover as we look at our passage today, we had to pursue unity because of what it was doing to our witness for Christ. See, often I think we do things that sound uh, really good. And, and, And they are meant maybe in a good way, but really they don't pursue this thing called unity. Like, have you ever heard a prayer request that sounded an awful lot like gossip? Like, we need to pray for so-and-so because of this, that, and the other thing. And we just air their dirty laundry, but we set it as a prayer request, so it's sort of okay. Or, I love you, but... Here's one thing I've learned in my relationship with my wife. If I have to say, but, after I love you, whatever comes after is not good, and it's not going to help the relationship. Or, we're talking about someone, and we say things like, I love the guy, but... Do you see where I'm going with this? My youth pastor, Travis Osborne, uh, he used to sarcastically tell us that we could say whatever we wanted about anyone, but we always have to follow it up with, but God bless their heart. I mean, that makes it all better, right? See, there's a problem in the church today. And actually, Jesus knew it would be a struggle for us, so he talked about it in John 17. And what we're going to talk about today is unity. Because our big idea is this, that God uses our unity with Jesus and each other to convince the world. Unity is important to God. And you might be asking, how important, Curtis? Well, I'm so glad you asked, YouTube audience. Uh, There's this point at which Jesus is going to unveil how important unity is to God. But we're going to look at the book of Proverbs. Before we actually go to the book of Proverbs chapter 6, I want to to just help you understand that there's something that's going to happen here that's going to be kind of strange. But I I want you to go with me here. That 
Is there anything that makes you sick? Like just sick to your stomach. Something that is disgusting to you that just kind of causes you to have this visceral like retching reaction. For me, it's that I can't clean up other people's throw up. Like if my kids throw up in the middle of the night, I wake up my poor wife, Danae, and go, I, I need you to take care of this. The kids have thrown up. Because if I go clean up the throw up, I'm going to throw up. God hates disunity so much, we're going to find out in Proverbs chapter 6, that even though we know God can't actually physically get sick, he says that disunity is disgusting to him. It's sickening. But let's look at the passage. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 in the ESV says this, there are six things that the Lord hates. So he's going to give us a list of six that he hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. How we should read that is, the seventh is worse than the things he hates. Beginning of verse 17, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. These are pretty terrible. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, And the seventh is the one that is abominable or detestable or disgusting or sickening to God. One who sows discord among brothers. Think about that. God hates those six six things. And one of them is those hands that shed innocent blood. But the one that he abhors, that is disgusting to him, that he can't stand, is one who sows discord among brothers. A sin so great, it makes God sick to think about. I want us to understand something about unity. And specifically the inverse of unity, disunity. God is disgusted with disunity. The world, as we'll find out in our passage today in John 17, the world is turned off by it. And it could be actually evidence that we don't even belong to Jesus. I want to show you a slide here of scriptures dealing with unity. Our passage today, John 17, 20 through 23, it comes from a much larger passage where Jesus is talking about unity with the Father and his unity with the Father and how that speaks to him as the Son of God. And then he gets into our core passage, John 17, 20 through 23, which is where he talks specifically about you and I. Then we look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. We've got Titus 3, 9 through 11. Galatians 3, 27 through 28. You can read the list. These are just the New Testament passages from my reading that talk about unity. So you can see that God takes this seriously. Now in John John 17, Jesus has this prayer and it follows a kind of priestly prayer uh, outline that we've seen if if you're familiar with Moses's prayer as he turns over the reins to Joshua, as we see uh, Moses's brother Aaron consecrating the temple in the Old Testament. He has kind of this priestly prayer where he prays about himself and then he prays for the people. And Jesus actually makes this turn after praying for those with him, those kind of in attendance, the disciples. When we think of the disciples, we think of the 12. Those who are with him, he prays for them, but then he turns, he pivots in verse 20. And typically what I've done with you guys, when I talk about our passages, I talk a lot about context. And the reason context is important, we have to understand what it meant to the original audience, 
so that we can find the overarching biblical meaning that transcends time and applies to us today. We don't have to do that in this passage because Jesus is specifically speaking about you and me today. Go with me to verses 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. Who? The ones who are already with him. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me, the ones who will believe because the disciples were faithful. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved me, even as, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. See, unity matters more. And you might say, more than what? I want to give you some examples of things that it means more than. Unity matters more than doctrine. And I know that's a hard pill to swallow, but I want you to understand that what Jesus doesn't say in this passage is, if we reread and we look at this verse, he says, may they also be in us, unified, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that, right? Unity matters more than doctrine. He doesn't say, may they be unified, may they experience unity in their doctrine, No, it's unity around the person of Jesus. It's not to say the doctrine isn't important. It is. What we believe and our convictions are important. Jesus is prioritizing what matters most to him as it pertains to the gospel for some reason is our unity. More than what church you attend. Now, I'm glad that you've chosen Alderwood. I'm glad you've chosen ASM. But what is more important than our church attendance, where we choose to call our church home, is our unity in Christ. It matters more than our giftings. There are so many scriptures that speak about our spiritual giftings, and those are important, but not as important as unity. And if you don't believe me, just look at the words of Jesus. It means more. It's more important. Unity matters more than Fill in the blank with whatever your pet issue is. See, unity is the key to unlocking the gospel to the world, according to Jesus. When he says, so that the world may know that you sent me, that may be the most important transitional statement in the New Testament. That so that, it is a key to unlocking how will the world know? The world will know by our unity. Verse 23 tells us that it it uses this word then. Then the world will know. When will the world know? Not until the followers of Jesus experience unity. Again, I am not saying that nothing else matters or that none of these things are important. This is a prioritization issue. If we can't get unity right, those other things really won't matter much as it pertains to our core mission, which is making disciples, making Jesus known, making him famous. Again, verse 21, may they also be in us so that the world may know 
that you have sent me. And when he says, may they also be in us, Jesus has just spent a large portion of his prayer talking about unity that he and the Father experience. This is a chance for the world to hear and receive the gospel if we are unified. It's not a definitive statement. We need to understand that. It says that they may know. It's the opportunity. God is a God of chances. And yet, I think we need to understand this is not a definitive statement. It is that they may know, not that they will know. But we'll get to the inverse of Jesus' statement here in a moment because I think that's equally important for us. Jesus says in John 13, earlier in this series, John 13, 35, he says this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, our love for each other speaks to whom we belong and our unity cannot be accomplished without loving each other. Our unity is the vehicle for the gospel to an unbelieving world. And I would go so far to say that if your life is not one that speaks of unity with other believers, then your life is being lived in such a way that it is not representing the gospel accurately. Our next thing here is that inverse statement. See, disunity silences our message while unity amplifies it to the world. So the inverse of that, so that statement could be said this way. If they are not unified, the world will not know that you have sent me. And I think we don't have to look very far to understand the churches may be more divided now than ever. And by that, I don't mean Alderwood, although I'm sure there are divisions here. I mean the big C church, the global church. We have hundreds, if not thousands of denominations worldwide And while we can't control the massive big C church, we do have an opportunity. We have a responsibility right now in the microcosm that we have a responsibility toward. And that can start with you, your small group, ASM, ACC, which reaches out to churches in Linwood, believers in Washington, the US, North America, the whole earth. See, thinking smaller actually accomplishes change. We focus on divisions in the big C church way too often. And in that, we miss the division in our own smaller circles that are actively driving a wedge between the gospel and our own relational world. I want to revisit something we talked about summers ago in our series uh, that we did called Ask Me Anything. And it's this concept of die for, divide for, debate for, and decide for. These are the different issues at which we can, uh, different ways we can look at issues that we have between us in the church. Die for issues. These are the, I will die on this hill. I would literally die for these things. If we don't agree on these things, I would question whether or not you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And those things, that list is very small. It's the divinity of Christ, that he is fully God, fully man. It's that Jesus died a substitutionary atoning death. He paid for my sins, that he rose again, conquering death, and that Jesus is the only way to the Father, the only way to restored relationship. These are die for issues. If you don't believe them, you don't believe the gospel. But then there's divide for, which is a step down. And I think often we hear divide for and we, we go, well, it's divide. Obviously that's division. And in some sense it is, but I think it might be division for a greater good toward unity. It's splitting for the greater good of the kingdom work. 
because we do have convictions and we're told in scripture that we should not, we shouldn't go against our convictions because then we'd be sinning against ourselves. But this does not mean that we can disparage another body of believers down the street who have different convictions. Let me give you an example. I have a friend named Ryan Ronvo who was one of my groomsmen and he's a guy that I grew up with from the time I was five years old, went all the way through youth group together and then we went to college together and I really wanted to live with Ryan. But here's the thing we decided. We decided to divide. We decided not to live together. In fact, because we were so different as people, we knew that living together could actually fracture and ruin our friendship. Our friendship was able to continue and we were able to continue loving each other because we didn't live together. Sometimes dividing means that we get to keep our unity. That doesn't necessarily mean that we've stopped loving or that we have stopped pursuing unity. We pursue unity over the die for issues and we don't disparage over the things we've chosen to divide over. See, we can still experience unity even if we don't do church together every weekend. I want you to think about how the gospel might spread if churches got united around the gospel. I mean, what might happen in your own small group if you individually spent more time celebrating the thing that unites us instead of the petty things that divide us? It's easy to point the finger at everyone else and how they contribute to division but it's typically only helpful to look inward. Matthew 7, 3 through 5, these are the words of Jesus, really telling us that we need to do some introspection or looking inward. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We need to look inward. Here's where we come to our next thing here is that true followers of Jesus pursue unity. See, if we don't pursue unity, I'm not trying to scare you here, but I'm gonna be real with you. It may point to a hard truth that we aren't really united to Christ. Again, I don't say that to scare you, but one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in us is to give us a supernatural ability to love other believers. And we know that if we've come to faith in Christ, that according to John 16, which we just went over last week, according to that passage... Jesus is going to send the advocate. When we come to faith in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is not actively working within us to produce unity and brotherly love for other believers, we might have to take a hard look at whether or not we've really surrendered to Jesus as Lord and Savior. So we see this most clearly represented in Galatians chapter 5, where it says, the fruit of the Spirit is first, love. The fruit of the Spirit is all these other things as well, but the fruit of the Spirit is first, love. And we talked about the the fruit in John 15 was a product of being connected to Christ. 
It's not something we strive for and try for. It's something that is a byproduct of being connected to Christ and the Holy Spirit working through you. And this morning, this afternoon, tonight, whenever you're watching this, I want to give you some things to work on because it's time to get to work toward unity. I think sadly that the church has not taken this idea of unity seriously enough, but Jesus could have prayed for anything when he was about to head to the cross. He could have prayed for anything for you and for I, as we are the future followers of Jesus that he's speaking of. He could have prayed for anything. And yet he prays for our unity so that the world may know that the father sent him. So here's the work because the gospel is too important for us to hinder its delivery by our divisions. Our unity will amplify the message of Christ to the world. So I have some questions I want you to think about. We always ask the question, why does any of this matter? What work needs to happen in your life, in your group, to accomplish unity? What apologies need to be given? Does forgiveness need to be extended? See, I think maybe the reason the world doesn't hear our message and the gospel is that we're like a family. Remember, we're the family of God, but sometimes the family of God looks like a family wandering through an orphanage, looking for a child in need, someone who needs the gospel while we're screaming at each other. But our big idea is that God uses our unity with Jesus and each other to convince the world. How are we doing at unity? And I think you have to first look inward. Take the plank from your own eye. Realize how you've contributed to division before we can remove the speck in our brother's eye. Unity is too important to get wrong because the eternity of the people that you know hangs in the balance. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you that you would pray for us that we have a prayer in your word where you pray specifically for the future followers and what you prayed for for us is our unity. Jesus, thank you. I pray that we would not let you down as a ministry in ASM, as a church at Alderwood, that we would strive for unity that we would take seriously this understanding that unity somehow supernaturally makes the gospel palpable, palatable to the world. That an unbelieving world would see you clearly because of the way that we are unified and the way that we love one another. God, I pray that that would be the description of Alderwood Student Ministry, that it would be the description of Alderwood Community Church, that those are a group of people who are united and who love each other. And it's attractive. And the gospel is amplified by their unity. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Guys, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.